0: Thank you, Claire. Well, good morning. Um, I, I thought I would start this morning with a, with a question. Do you know how much time the average man spends on the toilet every week? Somebody said three hours. That sounds an outrageous, outrageous amount of time, but is it? I don't know. I should should say, before you start offering me more answers, I do actually have an answer here. It wasn't just pure uh, interest on my part. Uh, It's somewhat rhetorical. No, the answer is uh, one hour, 45 minutes a week, uh, which over a typical lifetime, uh, with an average lifespan of about 79 years, is actually close to a year. (laughs) So men, we spend about a year uh, on the toilet. Am I coming through okay? Is my microphone on all right? Yeah, good, okay. Uh, About a year. Women, actually, not so far, about 20% less than that. So you're 20% more efficient in that regard. (laughs) What else do we spend our time doing? Um, I've got some numbers here from a study that was done a couple of years ago. So let's have a look. So it says uh, average lifespan, about 79 years, which is 28,835 days. Now of those, we spend about 33 years in bed. About 26 years sleeping and about seven years trying to get to sleep, apparently. We spend 13 years at work, or 15 years, I beg your pardon, 15 years at work. Now, you might be thinking, well, I've worked for 40 years. Uh, This is done in terms of hours. So if you work an eight-hour day, that's a third of a day. You get weekends off and holidays. So over your lifetime, in terms of total hours, this is average, of course, 15 years. We spend 11 years screen gazing. Eight years watching TV, three years on social media, I think that's probably gone up quite a bit just in the last two or three years. Four and a half years eating, three years on holiday, one and a half years exercising, which of course compared to the four and a half years eating, it's about the right ratio, I think, for probably for most of us. Uh, One year being romantic, interpret as you will, one year socialising. One year at school, which doesn't sound very much at all, does it? No, but over a lifetime, just in terms of hours. And this one I like. Over our lifetimes, we spend about 235 days standing in queues. Probably seems like more than that. Now, I've, I've done a calculation. I calculated that if I live to that average age, of 79 years, and between today, January the 29th, 2020, and my 79th birthday, I have 23 years, two months, and seven days left to live. Expressed in months, that's 278. 8,467 days or 203,000 hours. Now, assuming I'm asleep for the average amount of time, I only have 118,000 waking hours left. And frankly, that doesn't sound like a lot to me. (laughs) Depending on your age, each of you can make your own calculations. Some of you are over 79 already. What can I say? (laughs) The meter's running, yes. Well, no, I suspect that here in leafy Surrey, the average life expectancy is probably more than 79, and I equally suspect that the average lifespan of an Anglican is even longer, probably about 150, (laughs) or maybe it just feels like it when you're sitting through a sermon. Well, why am I talking about time? Well, today we're talking about purpose and pleasure. What is our life's purpose? What kind of impact should it have on how we spend our time day to day? Uh, Sometimes in church, and especially around a stewardship campaign, when we want your money, we talk about what we can offer to God. And we talk about dividing it into three areas, don't we? Treasure, talents, and time. In other words, our finances, our skills and abilities, and our availability, our time. Today I want to talk about, specifically though, about time. You'll be understanding Claire's uh, earlier reference now. Why? Because, well, I think with treasure and talents, I think we can all see that we've been blessed with different levels of resources, right, and different skill sets. So it's fairly easy to make an excuse and say, oh, well, that's fine for them. They've got more money than me, or they can sing, sing, or they can paint, or they can do maths, whatever it is. But with time, it's the great equaliser. We get 24 hours in a day. We get 52 weeks in a year. The only thing that separates us, of course, is our lifespan, and since that's an unknown factor, we're going to ignore it for this morning's purposes and simply stick to the fact that we have the same time available to us on a day-to-day basis. But the main reason to talk about time is because our sermon series, as you know, is looking at never-changing gospel in an ever-changing world. And I would argue that time, both, the, both our own and those of the people we communicate with, is under threat like never before. We live now in a society that constantly demands our attention with a myriad of media messages and images, ideas, opinions. Many of us have jobs in organizations where our customers or even our organizations make ceaseless demands on our time. We have online friendships where we're trying to juggle multiple conversations with dozens of people at the same time. We can amuse ourselves to death with any number of social media sites, play games, gamble, binge-watch hundreds of hours of Netflix and other shows on TV. And to cap it all, of course, we've armed ourselves with devices that make sure these things are available 24-7. Now, I am not going to insult any of you by saying who's got one. I am going to ask those who have stayed away from the temptation of getting one of these smartphones. So if you don't have a smartphone, would you like to put your hand up? That's why we can never get a hold of Tim Cross. That explains a lot. <laughs> okay, there's a few of you stalwarts out there. I'd say about a dozen. Well, well done. And that actually fits fairly closely uh, with the national average, which I'll uh, mention in a moment. People in the UK are now online an on average of 24 hours a week. That's twice as long as 10 years ago. One in five adults spend as much as 40 hours a week online. And Ofcom, who compiled uh, the report, attribute a lot of that to the increase in smartphones, which are now owned by 78% of us. As a nation, we're so addicted to our phones, we spend an average of three hours and 15 minutes a day on our phones, and we check them every 12 minutes. Is that you? Or does that sound on the low side? Two great novels were written in the middle of the last century that forecast a rather bleak uh, future for the human race. One was George Orwell's 1984, and the other was Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Anybody read either of those or both of those? Good, good show of hands, excellent. Um, Both novels have proven to be somewhat prophetic with the uh, predictions that they made, but I think maybe for our society it's perhaps the the slightly less well-known Brave New World that is closest to what we are now as a society. Now, a, a, a little while back, about 40 years ago, there was a chap called Neil Postman wrote a book in which he looked at those two novels and said, made his conclusion, he was an American, as to how he felt uh, those two books compared and how it compared to our world today. So let me show you a couple of the things that he said. First one is, Orwell feared that those who would, sorry, Orwell feared those who would ban books. Huxley feared there'd be no reason to ban a book because there'd be nobody who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Is this sounding slightly familiar? Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. I think... There's an awful lot of evidence that our culture has created an ever-increasing number of ways to eat up our available hours. Not all of them trivial, by all means, but many of them are. And I would suggest, again, that distracting us has actually become one of the enemy's most successful strategies. And as Christians, I think we need to understand and be aware of, manage the impact on ourselves as we try to live out and proclaim the gospel. And This morning, we're not going to get too deeply into major theology, but I hope what it will be is a bit of a wake-up call for us to guard and fence off our time in an appropriate way. So at this point, I'm going to ask Kirsty to come up and give us our reading, which is from Titus.
1: So as Jeff said, um, the reading today is taken from the book of Titus, um, chapter 3, starting at verse 3, and you can find that in the Bibles, Church Bibles, on page 1199. At one time we were too foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God... of love of God our saviour appeared he saved us not because of righteous things we had done but because of his mercy he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewed by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our saviour so that having been justified by his grace we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good, or in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Yes, thank you, Kirsty. So, Paul's letter to Titus is not a book that we look at that often in church. But it's quite appropriate for today because Titus was responsible for a church on the island of Crete, lucky man. And the Cretans had a bit of a reputation for being lazy and getting very easily distracted by meaningless arguments. And Paul wanted to make sure that Titus was addressing this with his church and using its time wisely. And I think so often with Paul's writings... He wants his readers, first of all, to understand the big picture. So he starts with the big premise. And I'm sorry, you might find this a little bit too much text on here, but I'm going to read it anyway. So Paul is saying, look, there was a time, there was a time when we, as Christians, were foolish and deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, we were saved Through the washing of rebirth, which trivia fans is the only time that Paul in his letters mentions new birth or rebirth. We were saved through the washing of rebirth and the Holy Spirit poured out generously through Jesus Christ, justified by grace and became heirs with the hope of eternal life. That's a pretty grand statement. If you think about what he's trying to address here, which is on the one hand, he's talking about people who are getting a little bit uh, enslaved by passions and pleasures maybe getting a little too distracted by meaningless arguments. So why is he talking about this? Because he wants us to remember who we are. We are sons and daughters of God and co-heirs with Christ of the kingdom. And that's a pretty astonishing statement and a pretty astonishing status. But it carries with it some responsibilities. Jesus was the self-revelation of God on earth. When people looked at Jesus and what he said and what he did, they saw God. So as co-heirs, it makes sense, doesn't it, that we as his church are expected to fulfill that same role. That's why Paul goes on to say in verse 8, I want to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful, careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. It's a pretty straightforward statement, isn't it, really? there's not... As I said earlier, not a great deal of complex theology in this piece of Paul's writings. We are sons and daughters of God. We are co-heirs of Christ. People need to be looking at us and saying, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Wow. So it's important that we devote ourselves to doing those things which will draw those kinds of comments. So this has implications for how we spend our time. I think you'd agree. I hope you would. Whose time is it anyway? Is anyone familiar with uh, Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? We are doing a fast trot through literature this morning, aren't we? hope you think you're getting your money's worth. Fantastic. Yes, Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Fantastic book if you haven't read it. It's basically a collection of supposed letters from a senior devil to a junior devil. And the senior devil is giving instruction to the junior devil on how to keep his designated human being, his man, away from God's clutches. So the premise is, you've got a kind of, um, I'd say, guardian. We've got, like we've got a guardian angel, there's also a devil who's trying to pull you away from God. So these are two devils discussing how best to do that. You must zealously guard in his mind the curious assumption, my time is my own. Let him have the feeling that he starts each day as the lawful possessor of 24 hours. Let him feel as though it's a grievous tax that portion of time he has to make over to his employers, and as a generous donation, that further portion which he allows to religious duties. But what he must never be permitted to doubt is that the total from which these deductions have been made was, in some mysterious sense, his own personal birthright. Your man is, in theory, committed to a total service of the enemy, and the enemy being God in this case. Your man is in theory committed to a total service of the enemy, and if the enemy appeared to him in bodily form and demanded that total service for even one day, he would not refuse. Now, if he thinks about his assumption for a moment, even he is bound to realize that he is actually in this situation every day. Even the devil recognizes that a Christian's time has been surrendered to God. And the appropriate image for us is not of us hoarding that 24 hours and doling it out generously as we see fit. It's more a case of us with open hands and an open heart coming before God and receiving what he generously gives back to us. So, Paul says, verse 8, we should devote our time to doing good, And then in verse 14, he adds, in order to provide for urgent needs and not lead unproductive lives. And I think this extra qualifier helps us to understand that Paul really is addressing very practical things here. He's not just saying, hey, be good, in some kind of moral, general sense. He is actually saying, get your hands dirty. This is hands-on, practical, meeting needs. This is where you need to be devoting your time. And I don't think we need to spend a lot of time here defining what good deeds looks like. But just briefly, if you're in any doubt, read the four Gospels. I think we could probably find there's no better model uh, than Jesus himself. Summed up, of course, with what we've called, or is often called the Jesus Manifesto in Luke 4, which is uh, up on the screen from the message. In case you're in any doubt, God's spirit is on me. He's chosen me to preach the message of good news to the poor, sent me to announce pardon to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, set the burdened and battered free, and to announce this is the year for God to act. And it seems to me that's a pretty good blueprint, isn't it? Still pretty relevant, sharing the good news of Jesus, seeing people forgiven and set free, healing, supporting, caring. Now I want to pause there for a moment because... I suspect one or two of you, and even me as I was writing it, was thinking, okay, this sounds this sounds very worthy and sounds a bit full on. Are you saying I can't watch Netflix anymore? Can I not go on Facebook anymore or play Candy Crush? Does anyone still play Candy Crush? Oh, my wife does. Okay, cool. I didn't know. No, I'm not saying that. And of course, there is plenty and plenty of evidence in the Gospels that Jesus socialized, went to parties, wanted his followers to enjoy life. And I am certainly not trying here and now to be directive or prescriptive about this. simply want to encourage us all to make our decisions about how we spend time in full knowledge of who we are. Because whatever we're doing, we should look for ways to prioritize the things of God by doing good and being productive. And that requires a certain amount of discipline. Um, you will, most of you, I think, know this uh, illustration of the Jar of Life, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it's, this is just a reminder... I remember Liz, is Liz here? Yeah, Liz, you did a a practical demo of this a few years ago. I remember it with your jars and your jugs of water. But basically, the jar represents, just one of them, represents your 24 hours in a day. The sand represents all the trivial, less important stuff we do, and the smaller stones, as they get bigger, the more and more important things. And if you look at the jar on the left, you can see that the entire base is sand and small stones. To the extent that the important things just don't fit. They're at the top. And on the right, all the big stones, all the important stuff was added first. And then the sand, there was still room, there is still room to pour in the sand that fits between the gaps, just as the least important things in our lives should be made to fit around the more important. A useful reminder, hopefully, about looking carefully at priorities. And if you uh, also recall from Scripture, one of Jesus' most famous statements, tells us a lot about how to assess our priorities. What did he say? He said, don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, we all know the expression that time is our most valuable commodity. So I wonder, does that scripture still hold true if we change this last verse and say, for where your time is spent, there your heart will be also? Is that fair? Is it true? I mean, I started this morning by saying we spend 33 years in bed, and it's a fair comment to say, well, that's just a bodily need, isn't it? That's not really where my heart is invested. And then I think about your average teenager dragging themselves out of bed by lunchtime, and I think, well, maybe there is some truth in that. Equally, if you're spending long hours at work, it could be that you're genuinely struggling to put some food on the table and raise a family, and that is entirely understandable. On the other hand, I have often come across in my career people who are basically alcoholics, sorry, (laughs) not alcoholics, those as well, workaholics, they put the hours in because they want to. Because it's work that gives them status and identity. I wonder if that's any of us here this morning. You may feel that chunks of your time are simply out of your control. If you have family members to support or suffer some kind of disability, then, you know, that's going to be more challenging. But again, I would encourage you, reflect and pray. How can God seem, turn those seemingly challenging situations to his advantage If you're someone who spends a lot of time online or on your phone, maybe you can think about ways to do good in that area. Here's someone who did exactly that. This is a guy called um, Kevin Adler. Very uh, um, pertinent, this, and and timely in the sense that this this guy was featured on the back of the Church Times only this week. Uh, But basically, you can see his quote there. But Kevin Adler uh, is the founder of Miracle Messages. It's an organization in the U.S. that gets homeless people to record messages onto a phone and then the miracle message team go and take that video and go and find that person's family and show them the message, deliver them the message. And they've actually managed to uh, create 255 family reunions between families of of homeless people and, and the homeless people themselves in five years. And Kevin says here, as you can read, I had this question on my heart, how would Jesus use his smartphone? The way we use it can be fun, but it's a tool. It's a platform for extending the values that Jesus would live. There's somebody who's getting creative about using today's technology. And there are many ways to lead productive lives. We just have to keep reminding ourselves that in the words we heard from Scripture, we were saved to do good. We were saved to do good. Finally, I just want to talk very briefly about the time we have in relation to communicating with others in terms of mission and evangelism. Because I've described at length how we have to guard ourselves against distraction, keep ourselves focused on the things of God. But of course, time poverty impacts everybody, including those we're trying to talk to. So how do we get through in a culture that makes it increasingly difficult to cut through the noise with our message of hope and salvation? Um, There's a whole other sermon that could be preached on... Uh, media messaging and and, uh, short messaging, online messaging to to break through. And how do we get through particularly to the younger generations? That's probably for another day. The only one I would say is have a look, make a mental note of uh, Reverend Christopher Lee. The Rev Chris Lee does a fantastic job, these 60-second sermons. You can see them on YouTube, he does them on Instagram, and has found a really nice, uh, uh, short way, succinct way of presenting uh, gospel messages in a a bite-sized piece that fits with how people tend to consume media these days. But what I really want to say uh, uh, is this, that if we are visibly doing good and leading productive lives among our friends and in our, among our neighbours and in our communities, it will be noticed. It will be noticed, and it's one of the things that created the platform for the church to grow in the early days. It was, and it still is, Countercultural to be supporting and caring and praying for strangers and even enemies. So if you want to jump in and do something practical, maybe uh, you're thinking about that, um, you could do worse than looking at the two, two things that we're running already as missions. One is healing on the streets, and one is street angels, both active in the community. I actually joined street angels 10 years ago because I felt I was spending a lot of time thinking about and talking about doing good, but was became very aware that I didn't seem to be really doing anything very practical about it. And I can't tell you the number of times over the last 10 years, how often a young adult has expressed absolute astonishment that anyone would want to be out in the town in the early hours, helping people without any expectation of reward or thanks. Because in this world where opinions and ideas and, and beliefs are both cheap and plentiful, There is clear evidence to suggest that especially the younger generations, we're looking at at millennials and Gen Zers and others, have a deep scepticism and mistrust of words alone. You could say that's a universal thing, but it has got certainly more rooted today than ever. Words that are not backed up by actions. So there are still many opportunities for us to have an impact to reach people, including young people, with authentic, hands-on, sacrificial love. I'm going to finish with the words of a man called Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was a missionary who was martyred back in the 1950s. But he had a lovely quote. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We can't keep the time that we've been allocated. We can only give it away wisely in the service of God and in love of our neighbors. Amen.